0: Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Would you look with me at Mark chapter 1? Mark chapter 1, we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark today. We've sung a good amount. And uh, I want to move as quickly as I can today, but this is why we're here, uh, to really, if you will, to kind of dive in uh, both feet into the Scripture. If you're new to Ravenswood, you're visiting Ravenswood, what kind of church are we? When it comes to the Word, we're a church that just kind of Goes next chapter, next verse. Say, so what, what can I expect if I come back next week? You can expect that we'll pick up where we left off this week. We have been now, this is our seventh study in the book of Mark, Been chapter one for seven weeks. And we continue to work our way through it, asking the Lord to teach us, really answering a question that the disciples asked. When it came to the person of Jesus, the disciples walked back and looked at him and said, what manner of man is this? Who is this man? And so we're asking the Lord to teach us who is Jesus. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 29, and we'll read these verses and then I'll jump into the message. This is God's word. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's Wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and Annan, they tell him, of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. When they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. This is God's word. I grew up I grew up in a family of 6 kids back in the late 1900s. I like saying that the late 1900s makes me sound old, right? Mom and dad are here, but I have 5 siblings in the late 1900s. I have 3 older brothers and 2 younger sisters. My upbringing was miserable. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was I was the littlest boy, the youngest boy, who was never as awesome as his little sisters. I was number four. I was the the epitome of middle child. I don't say that complaining. I'm I'm being facetious about some of that. (laughs) I learned something, though, in my upbringing about older brothers and sisters. They often think they have authority when they really don't. They think they're in charge, but they're really not. I say that because we left off in our Mark series a couple weeks ago, and I had told you that we were entering into a section on Jesus and His authority, the authority of Jesus. And I believe I believe you. You, if you were with us a couple weeks ago and in the weeks ahead, I think you'll see it a little bit more profoundly. But two weeks ago, we were in the town of Capernaum with Jesus. There, he had called four men. Andrew, Simon, who's also called Peter. He's Andrew's brother. And the sons of thunder. Remember the sons of thunder, James and John? These guys were fishermen. They were not to be seen as second-class citizens. They were middle-class men. They ran a successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee there at the city of Capernaum. And they had left all that. They had left their profession, their identity, their definition of success. They left it all, Mark tells us, as do other gospel writers, to follow Jesus. Mark one twenty one told us that on the Sabbath, they entered into Capernaum and Jesus taught. So these here's Jesus and these four disciples following with him. They go into the synagogue and what happens in the synagogue we saw. And I'm just gonna the scripture is gonna come up here as I talk, and I'm I'm not gonna read it all word for word. <clears throat> but number one, there's two things that happened in the synagogue that we saw last message, and that was one: Jesus teaches with authority, unlike the scribes. So we saw that in Mark 1:22. The people of Capernaum had never heard anything like what Jesus was doing. The scribes in those days would simply regurgitate, respeak the teachings of other scribes. They would keep on their hearers uh, man-made traditions. But not Jesus. Jesus on that Sabbath spoke with a vigor unlike anything they had ever heard. His command was a command of the truth. His authority was a, an authority over the message, over the scriptures. They had never witnessed anything like this. Here he is, this man, that had an authority when it came to the truth. But that wasn't the only place he had authority we saw. The second place that we saw Jesus had authority was inside the synagogue. There's a man with an unclean spirit. A man with an unclean spirit. There, as Jesus teaches, the people who were most worked up by his teaching was, was the demons of the fallen kingdom of Satan. They're the ones most offended by what Jesus is doing. And Mark says that this man in the synagogue had this unclean spirit, which makes you wonder why in the world is this man in the synagogue? Probably something we could speak into here in future weeks, and we will. But nevertheless, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit for speaking and commands him to come out of the man, showing not only an authority over the message, but an authority over the kingdoms of this world, namely the spiritual the spiritual kingdom of darkness. Really, all of this is is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because in Mark 1, we were told that the people were amazed and began to question amongst themselves, asking things like, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Verse 28 tells us, of Mark 1, that His fame spread immediately. His fame spread abroad throughout all the region, round about Galilee. So the authority of Jesus is seen as He has command over the truth, command over even the demons, and the people are amazed, and His fame begins to spread. Fascinating, right? Incredible. And I'm sure you, like me, we would have loved to have been there to hear Jesus stand up and say thus saith the lord and to see him interact with this demon now imagine for a moment imagine for a moment what the four guys who have just left their fishing business are thinking the the glee and the delight on the four disciples i mean they leave the synagogue and they're going what in the world right? like this is incredible And on the the text that we're going into today that we just read shows us that it's still the Sabbath and they leave the synagogue and immediately they enter into the house of Simon Peter and Andrew. And James and John are in tow and I want you to notice in our text today, I want you to notice three aspects of the passage. First, I want you to notice that there's a mother-in-law who's healed. A mother-in-law who's healed. Now we're just going to fly over the story for a moment. Look at verse 29. And for when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Literally, they they immediately, right away, they left the synagogue and they entered in the house. Now, Simon, who we'll refer to as Peter, and his brother Andrew, don't live far from the synagogue. We're going to throw some pictures up here for you. This is Capernaum. This is a little video. Uh, this is... Uh, the video is going to play through. And what you saw to the left there is actually the synagogue, which we showed you a couple weeks ago. This is all foundation for old homes in, in Capernaum. Uh, this is actually modern day uh, what's there. I want you to see the picture. This is the picture of Peter's house. The Byzantines come in and they in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, they start building churches over what they call holy sites to preserve the site. And to this day, there's a very modern-looking building over it. But pause right there for a moment. This is the right side. This is Peter's house underneath this building. This is the synagogue right here, which was built in the 4th century, but there's the foundation of the synagogue was the foundation of the time of Christ. Now, stay with me here for a moment. You can see that it's literally just a short distance from the synagogue to Peter's house. And so... These five men are on their way to the to the home of Peter and Andrew and they're going to observe the Sabbath meal together. Which usually would have happened about midday on the Sabbath and verse tells verse 30 tells us that when they come into the synagogue, or excuse me when they come into the home, they're informed about something. Look at verse 30. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever and and they tell him of it. So Peter, the future apostle, the prolific leader of the church, number one, we find out he's married, which is interesting in and of itself for future teachings. But it's also worth noting here that Andrew and Peter were not really original. they were not originally from Capernaum. They were from Bethsaida, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had moved to Capernaum, possibly for fishing business, possibly for Peter's wife. Maybe his wife's family was from Capernaum. But the text tells us that Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. I could insert some really good jokes right here, all right, about men and their mother-in-laws, but I'll, I'll refrain today, guys. But that may not startle us that much. A fever for us seems rather normal for sickness. But in Jesus' day, you have to understand, life expectancy at this time was between the ages of 30 and 35. To have a fever was very alarming. But what's even more alarming in this is the Greek word that is used for fever here is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used again to speak of a fever. The Greek word literally means she is on fire. She is on fire. She is deathly ill, and this fever is an indication of it. And the word used is anon. They immediately, which just means immediately, they tell Jesus about the situation. It was a cause for concern. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. Now for time, I won't go there to show you, but both Matthew and Luke note the story in a similar way. But Luke says that Jesus in Luke four thirty-nine, Jesus rebuked the fever. Now, if you, that, that might trigger our memory that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit in Mark 1, and Luke tells us that he rebukes the fever that Peter and mother, Peter's mother-in-law is dealing with. But I want you to lay your eyes back on the text. Verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. I want you to picture the setting. The disciples are watching. They just saw the incredible works in the synagogue. But now there's a man with authority over demons and over the truth. He is the God-man. He is full of authority and power. And yet here he is operating in incredible compassion. Incredible love. Incredible tenderness. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law of this fever. I want you to think this might be the best Sabbath meal ever. The joy, the laughter, the excitement, the relief that is at this table. I mean, really, when you think about verse 31, have you ever read anything more beautiful than this? Words you see in verse 31 are not words you would find in the Koran or in the pantheon of gods, or in any other system of deities. Here Jesus is, the one with all authority, is the one with all compassion. We'll come back to that in a moment. I want you to see secondly in the text, there's a city in need. Look at verse 32. And at even when the sun did set. Word spreads fast in this day. It just took one Facebook post from the Sons of Thunder. Everyone in Capernaum knew what had happened, both in the synagogue and in Peter's house. And as the Sabbath day is coming to an end, the Sabbath is finishing, they arrive at Peter's door. Verse 32 says, They brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door. Imagine this outside of Peter's house, it's like an emergency room. It's an emergency room, not just of sick people, but people who've never walked people who've never spoken people who can't see people who have infections there's also there people who are who are possessed with devils this is an incredibly for lack of a better term of incredibly wild scene it's it's got to be overpowering to the senses the chaos and how does Jesus act Verse 34, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him not. Here again, Jesus heals with a heart of compassion. We could consider this section of authority to also take us to the compassionate heart of the servant Savior. This whole city is there, some with their loved ones getting healed while others are simply observing the phenomenon who is Jesus of Nazareth. It's a marvelous moment here in this little town of Capernaum. Matthew tells us that Jesus is fulfilling the messianic promise of Isaiah 53. When Matthew notes in Matthew 8, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. This is speaking of the scene in Capernaum. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. A city in need. In all of this, in all of this, I want you to stop for a moment and a picture. The man with authority is the man with compassion. But practically speaking, I want you to imagine, imagine the joy in Capernaum. The the chatter going around from the synagogue. What happened there to now outside Peter's mother's home, mother-in-law's home. The the chatter is, is incredible. But Mark, as he does, keeps the story moving. He takes us, thirdly, to a portion where the servant Savior is empowered for ministry. Now, you can imagine there's a lot of people that have been at the door of Peter's home. Could have been ministering late into the night. Jesus is tired. He needs rest. He needs refreshment. But he indicates here there's a rest that is greater than what sleep could offer. Notice in verse 35, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. Jesus had found that the greatest refreshment for a tired soul is prayer. Let me say that again. Jesus found that the greatest refreshment for a tired soul is prayer. As the body needs sleep to be strengthened, so must the Christian have prayer to be strong. As you and I wouldn't, don't do well avoiding sleep each day, so we do not do well to avoid prayer each day. But Jesus indicates that there's a rest that is greater than a physical that's available in prayer. His actions speak of this. Stanley Jones describes prayer as a time of exposure to God. A time of exposure to God. Many Christians simply live their lives underexposed. And Jesus here models for us in his actions the necessity of prayer. He must get away and pray. Verse 37 says, when they found him, they said to him, all men seek for thee. And you, could, you could think of it in our way. They, they get to Jesus, they're going, where'd you go? There's people looking for you. Don't you remember what happened last night? We should build off this, right? Like the marketing director of the four was like, we should be doing more of this, Jesus. Where'd you go? I loved that Mark doesn't indicate Jesus even answering them. He said to them, Let's go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Now, we'll actually see more of 38 and 39 next week as by way of our introduction, but I want you to listen. I've literally just told you the story with a couple remarks. But let's quickly make some observations here, which is good practice for us to make when we read and study Scripture. Observation by asking two questions. Number one, as we look at the text, how do those that are healed respond? How do those that are healed respond? Look at verse 31 again. And he came and took her, speaking of the mother in law, took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Notice these words. And she ministered unto them. Mark makes a very important point narratively here. By telling us the story, he makes a point that we need to get. Peter's mother-in-law, after she is healed of her fever, we're told that she turns her attention to ministering. Ministering to Jesus and those that are here. The implication here is first that there's an immediacy to the healing. So much I could say with plenty of time about Jesus and the immediacy of his healing. There's not a time to heal it's an immediate healing and in in that the immediately the fever left her and the way this is written for us in the original language is also the immediately continues that she immediately begins to minister so she's healed immediately and she's immediately beginning to minister unto them now pause here for a moment we see jesus in verse 34 he heals those that were sick and possessed with devils. When Jesus heals someone, what is he doing? What is he doing? Now, I want you to pay close attention here. When Jesus is healing, there's a lot that's being done. There's a lot being spoken. There's a lot being played out for us. But I want you to notice in the one being healed, what Jesus is doing is he is giving them back a greater sense of their humanity. Don't miss this. When Jesus heals someone, he is giving them once again a more whole picture of their humanity. So when Jesus restores people humanity, he is making them the truest version of themselves. Now why does that matter? Because in the greatest healing that is done in the gospel, Jesus is turning you and me to the truest version of ourselves. That's important. The truest version of yourself is who Jesus has saved you to be. Your identity today, your truest identity, is not your struggle with sin. Your truest identity today is not the structures of identity that the world is telling you that you have to manifest. Your truest identity is not your pain or your past or your scars. It's not your Enneagram number. It's not your Myers-Briggs type. It's not what anybody else has told you you are. Your truest identity is what Jesus has made you to be in the gospel. Why does that matter? Here's why. For a thousand reasons it matters, but today from our text, when we see our identity in some other way than the gospel, we are going back to an identity that is totally obliterated by sin. Without Christ, we are desperate, as desperate as Peter's mother-in-law. We are as desperate as those with diseases and demon possession. Apart from Christ, I am not who God made me to be. I need healing so that I can become the real me. But here is the big point Mark gives us that as God restores our humanity and gives us a new identity in Christ, He makes us, are you ready? To be servants. He makes us to be servants. That's the point of this text. And Jesus heals the the mother-in-law. She ministers. She takes on what is right for her identity as one who is healed. In fact, it's amazing that the greatest man who ever was on this earth became a servant. The greatest man who was on this earth that became a servant says that the greatest among you shall be your servant in Matthew chapter 23. Listen very carefully. Why does the implication of that question matter? What was the action of the one that was healed? Listen, we are never fully who God made us to be when we are unwilling to serve. We are never fully who God made us to be when we're unwilling to serve. I am amazed coming out of our Serve serve Sunday, I am amazed at the response of God's people to service and I am saddened at the same time by the lack of response of some of God's people to serve because I'm just a pastor saying to you, your, your new identity in Christ makes you a servant. To not be willing to serve is to go back and live out of a selfish identity for myself. A servant's heart gives evidence to our healing when we serve one another. When we give ourselves to open a door to serve in a nursery, to serve kids' church, to serve around the property, to serve in a and youth group and music ministries and all the ministries that proclaim the gospel. Listen, we're living out our true identity as God's people. So the question is, what is the response? The response of the one healed that we should take note of here is to serve. Secondly, we'll see another response in a moment, but secondly, why must Jesus pray? Why must Jesus pray? Honestly, this is a great question to ask. If you're a thinking Christian, which hopefully you don't check your brain at the door, God doesn't ask you to do that. You may be curious why Jesus, the God-man, must pray. I mean, surely Jesus does not need to pray and confess sin, right? Right? Jesus has no need of repentance. So why does Jesus have to pray? Well, we know from John 17 that Jesus prayed for the glory of the Father. Jesus prayed for the unity and joy of His disciples and future Christians. We can be sure that in Jesus prayed, He prayed in adoration of His Father. We can be sure that Jesus prayed for the work that God had sent him to do. We can be sure that Jesus was praying for himself as well. But Jesus, listen very carefully, Jesus being truly God did not need, keyword to pray. Listen, Jesus being truly man models for us a life of full dependence on the Father. What is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is me saying, I have no ability, but God, you have all ability. I live my life fully dependent on you, God. And so when Jesus, the Son of God, prays, he is saying to the Father in the same way that he wants us to say to the Father, I am still fully dependent on you, God. But I also want you to grasp here to this text The refreshment that Jesus gives us and shows us in finding quiet time of prayer. Can I just give you some pithy comments about this? Listen very carefully. You may not need that vacation. You may actually need to spend time in prayer. You may not need that kind of getaway weekend to just kind of get my life back in order, you might find the refreshment you need in prayer. The truth is, every one of us who goes on vacation comes back needing a vacation from our vacation, right? The great vacation you need, the great rest and refreshment you need is actually found in prayer. Now, this is not a message on prayer, but Jesus models for us after a day of exhausting ministry, Jesus gets away to find refreshment in prayer. The answer for your Monday blues tomorrow is to begin it in prayer. It's to begin it in prayer. And so let's consider some application. you have observed, we've seen the story. What do we see in the story? Let me give you some, a quick reminder. One, we see Jesus coming out of the synagogue and healing Peter's mother-in-law. Two, we see people coming to the door of Peter's house and Jesus healing them of all the diseases and of, the, of, of, of demon possession and 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 all of that, okay? But I want to con- I want to conclude today and we look at the observation, we ask the question, what is the response and why does Jesus pray? I want you to I want you to think of the response here in the first application. We saw the response of the mother-in-law, but you know what we didn't see? We didn't see the response of the people that were here. So, it leads us to this conclusion statement, this application. Jesus is not to be used but but to be loved and worshiped. I'm looking at Christians, myself included. We are all very good at finding Jesus to be useful. We find Jesus to be useful. Christian maturity is finding Jesus to be beautiful. You saw Peter's mother-in-law. What was her response? It was serving. You don't see the response of the others. What's interesting about this is this point jumps us ahead through the other accounts of the Gospel writers that we have to grasp that the majority of the people who came to Him, John notes this in John 6, as He feeds 5,000, they didn't come to Jesus for, for for who He was. They came to Jesus for what He gave. You and I need to grasp that the majority of people come to Christ not for who he is but they come to Jesus because he gives them something. And yes the truth is our Christian life started by us coming to Jesus for something. We needed salvation. We needed to be saved from a, the punishment of a holy God in hell. But the danger is that when that many of us continue in our Christian life only we only continue appreciating what we get from Jesus. We're just there for the healing. We're just there for the blessing. We're just there for the food. We're just there for the to watch the magician do his work. We're just there to, to watch what Jesus gives. But we're not there for who Jesus is. Christian maturity is found in seeing not Jesus as your magician, but Jesus as your glorious, beautiful, wonderful master. And Christian, we are to love Him and worship Him for who He is, not just use Him for what He gives. So I ask you this morning, look at Peter's mother-in-law, and then look at the others. One, one's response is a response of love and worship. We don't get the other people's response, which is to tell us that they just came for the healing. And Jesus is gracious enough to heal. Jesus is kind enough to give you what you need. He's kind enough to fill your belly. But hear me, when you move beyond that relationship of, I just need Jesus to give me what I need. No, friend, you need Jesus to be who he is. That's what you need. You don't need a genie. You need a savior. You don't need a magician. You need a master. You don't need somebody to just entertain you. You need somebody to give you the satisfaction of your soul. Where is that found? That's found in our response to Jesus to be one of love and worship. Secondly, and here's the pinnacle of the message today. It's a second application statement. And it's a statement, and then we'll press on it for a few moments. Jesus is very unlike us. Jesus is very unlike us. Now, I want want to ask you to, if I lost you a little bit ago, dial back in, okay? I want you to lean into this with me for a moment. I want you to see, listen, if you're a Christian, I just talked about seeing Jesus for who He is. I want to show you who He is. I want you to leave today saying, my goodness, that's my Savior. This text gives us a window into the compassion of the person of Christ. Now, why do I say Jesus is so unlike us? Here He is, you have to recognize the story, here Jesus is in the back of a very unimpressive home, caring for an elderly Middle-class to lower-middle-class mother-in-law. Then we see a couple verses later. He's being thronged by sick and demon-possessed people. Verses 38 and 39, he, he's on his way to do more of that in other towns, as we'll see next week. Verse 28 had told us, if we're paying attention in verse 28, that his fame had spread abroad. Now, here's, here's Jesus. Are you ready? Here's who Jesus is. He is both praised and compassionate. He is both popular and accessible. He is both way high up and stooping down low. Even with his fame spreading, which Mark cares little about, the compassion of Jesus is at the center. Now, why does that matter? Because this is why Jesus is unlike us. Are you ready? Because in our world, more fame means less access. In our world, more popular means more untouchable. More fame means less compassion to you as an individual. More Twitter followers, more Instagram followers, more disconnected, more power and more position, less less access. I mean, good luck getting your favorite politician to come over to your house for dinner. They just want your vote, right? I mean, think about it your favorite musician, actor, actress, influencer, good luck getting them to go get a cup of coffee with you tomorrow. In our world, anyone else, the more fame, the less genuine compassion. When you're in despair, discouraged, really low, you don't expect a text or a phone call from the president. You don't expect the governor to check in on you. The mayor. I mean, I don't even ever hear from my alderman. Right? This kind of disconnected from my personal life, but here is Jesus. Listen very carefully. Here is Jesus. Jesus is both supreme royalty and overflowing compassion. He is supreme royalty. He is higher than high. And he, at the same time, is overflowing compassion. Jesus will go higher and lower than anyone. And he's fulfilling the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 57, 15. Listen to these words. I want you to think, have you ever thought about this in the lens of who Christ is? For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With Him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble. To revive the heart of the contrite ones. Jesus is both in the high and holy place, and He is also with the humble spirit. Why does this matter? Joseph Hart, the hymn writer, told us why it matters. In his hymn that he wrote in the 18th century, Come Ye Sinners, poor and needy. He wrote these words. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Listen to these words. Some of the most beautiful ever penned. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love and power. Full of pity, love and power. The Savior of the world, the, the royal Son of God, stands ready, full of pity, love, and power. So here's why this matters. This is your Savior today. Listen very carefully. Jesus today loves you with every ounce of His strong and mighty heart. Did you get it? Jesus loves you today with every ounce of His mighty This is your Savior. You say, I know that. I know that. Maybe today it's not a fever or diverse sickness, disease that is your struggle. I want to ask you today. I want to ask you to think with me. What is your heartbreak right now? What is your heartbreak? What is your stress? What is your burden? What is your fear? What's the first thing you thought about this morning when you woke up? It's the first concern you had? What is it that's on your heart and mind right now? Listen. This is your Savior. Jesus doesn't stand in the other room, listen very carefully, and bark at you to get better. He doesn't stand in the other room and tell you to get it together. He doesn't stand in the other room and tell you to get out of bed and get moving. What does Jesus do? I want you to picture this. Jesus kneels down to every one of us and takes us by the hand. And he lifts us up. Show me another Savior like that. Show me another Savior like that. The Savior of the world Looks at you and looks at me with the same compassion that he looked at Peter's mother in law. And he says, Dustin, I know you got burdens. I know you got stress. I know you're worried. I know you're overwhelmed. I know you're scared about finances. I know you're scared about health. I know you're scared about tomorrow. I know you're worried about your job. I know. And I'm going to get down on your level and I'm going to be there right. With you. So what's the implication of that? In conclusion, the implication is twofold. Number one, if you're a Christian, this is your Savior. Is your life dark and difficult? Absolutely. But you walk through this life with a Savior who we see in this text. And here's the fact, and I don't mean to be trite. I don't mean to be curt and sharp and rude about this. Here's the fact because you walk through this life with a Savior like that, we will be okay. We will be okay. We will be okay. I was thinking about that this morning. I felt unfair thinking about that as Sarah Rader buried her husband and looked at six kids who no longer have their dad living. And you say, would you say that to her? If Jesus is who he is, you will be okay. You will be okay. Why? Because he gets down on our level and he lovingly serves us. He is compassionate to us. Friends, we will be okay. If you're here today, what's the other response? If Christ is not your Savior, if you're not a Christian, you know what the response would be that I would say to you is, wouldn't you love to have a Savior like that? In the same way, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you want to be saved? Work your way up to me. Do everything and get to me. Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't stand up in heaven and tell you to climb the ladder to me. I came down to earth to save you. I didn't ask you to get to me. I came to you. And wouldn't you like to have a Savior like that? Wouldn't you like to have a Savior like that? One who came to save you. That's Jesus. I told you we're asking that question as we look at Mark. But the disciples asked, what manner of man is this? You know what manner of man it is? You know who he is? He is all authority and all compassion. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.